Welcome to Context Matters. I am Cindy Parker. I am a writer, a speaker, and an educator who loves to gather around the table with interesting people who have different perspectives from me and then talk about God, Bible, theology, and other tangentially related subjects. Welcome to the first episode of season four. I am so thrilled you are here, and I am excited about the wide variety of people who have agreed to be on the podcast, including a scholar I love and adore and put on every single reading list on every syllabus I write, the great Ellen Davis. Can I tell you how excited I was when she agreed to be interviewed? Well, she doesn't come up until October at some point in time. But I have to tell you, you know who I really want to thank? My Patreon team. People like David and Michelle Kaufman, Lisa and Asuga Abaya, Kathy and Scott Parker, they financially support Context Matters along with being a great community of people who encourage me and give me editing ideas for articles I write. I am so appreciative for what they make possible. So thank you, team, for getting us to season four. We start the season off with a prolific writer and a student fan favorite, Dr. Tremper Longman. He is the Distinguished Scholar and Professor Emeritus of Biblical Studies at Westmont College, along with continuing to publish books and teach online. I'm not exactly sure how he does it all, but I am thrilled he created time in his schedule to talk with me about one of his recent-ish books titled Confronting Old Testament Controversies. But before we do, I asked if Dr. Longman's growing up years influenced the way he approaches the Bible now. Growing up in terms of the church, my parents were going at the time to what we would consider pretty liberal churches. And by the time I became conscious of of my church environment, first of all, during the time, I didn't feel like there were a lot of, let's say, religious demands put on the congregation, certainly not on me, with the exception of a sixth grade Sunday school teacher who was memorable. And in retrospect, she obviously was more evangelical in her theology than the pastoral Mm -hmm. staff was. And I remember for the first time kind of thinking, oh, yeah, there are things here to think about concerning God. Just to give you a little bit of a sample, when I did join the church when I was 13, the final step of that communicant process was a meeting with one of the ministers. And I met with the associate minister who was near retirement. But I remember asking him, and I talk about this in the book, Confronting Old Testament Controversies, uh, going in and he asked, well, do you have any questions before before you join this church? And I said, yeah, you know, I'm really having a hard time thinking that what the Gospels say about Jesus actually happened. And his response was, well, we all do. That's not a problem. Uh, feel free to join the church kind of thing. <laughs> and your 13-year-old mind was like, there's got to be something more than that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it wasn't that developed yet that I thought about it much more than, okay, I'll join the church. Yeah, uh, I, And I could talk about other times when, for instance, you know, my, my sister whom I love dearly, this is later after I became a Christian, when, after I became a Christian, <laughs> there were about 25 elders. I was 
18 or 19, the minister detected a little bit of religious interest in me. So he made me an elder. So I became an elder of this church when I was 19. But to give you an indication of how serious they took religious commitment in their officers, I had a a 14, 15-year-old sister who really had no interest in God at that time, but they made her a deacon. And I remember as an elder standing up to this class of deacons and saying, you know, it's really important if you're an officer in the church that you really have a commitment to Christ. And my sister, I guess back then, we're, we're very close now, but back then she stood up in this group and said, who are you to demand that we are <laughs> thinking to myself, you're becoming a deacon, but a case. So that's the environment I grew up in. And so as opposed to a lot of my friends who grew up in fundamentalist circles and, and uh, reacted against that very strict fundamentalism. I had a friend of mine wanting me to be on his podcast. You know my friend, but I won't use his name at this point, who wanted to, he was interviewing a whole series of people who grew up fundamentalist and who had the, you know, moment of awareness that, you know, maybe it isn't this extreme sort of fundamentalism isn't really representing what God wants us to do. And I said to him, I said, look, I have the exact opposite upbringing. I grew up in this very liberal church. And to me, that liberalism really doesn't point you to Christ and doesn't call on you to a life of discipleship. And and it's not that my friend was going in that I going all the way over in that direction. But I, I think that conversation helped me see that we have to be kind of careful here not to overreact in either direction. I I sometimes tell my students when I read John Piper, it drives me into the arms of Brian McLaren. When I read Brian McLaren, it drives me into the arms of John Piper. Okay, so so in other words, uh, to me, there's a sweet place in the somewhere in between those two. Yeah. So, it, it at what point did you feel a real connection then mm. to Bible and history oh, and right. God? Yeah. What was the context that kind of pushed you in that direction? Well, I mean, um, going way back to ancient history, 1969, 1970, uh, was during the Jesus Revolution. Oh, and, yeah. And so I remember, I remember, oh, well, first of all, uh, a girlfriend gave me a copy of The Late Great Planet Earth, which as I talk about that now, as I read it, Hal Lindsey, in my opinion, has a totally incorrect hermeneutic. But he gets one thing right, and that is Christ is coming back sometime, and he's going to <laughs> he's going to judge sinners. And I knew I was on the wrong side of that divide, so that got me thinking. And then there was a um, there was a I was on a football team, and allow an old man to talk about glory days. We just celebrated the fifty. We all got together, celebrated the fiftieth anniversary of our winning the. Ohio State championship, high school championship, and coming in third in the nation. And uh, some of our listeners will know that Dan Allender, but they won't know that he was a 
honorable mention All-American defensive lineman on that. I was only third team All-State center, but still. But there was a, a young Baptist minister moved into town and he was athletic and he knew during summer we did practices in the park. He just came and started running with us and, you know, relating to us and, and sharing the gospel with us. So that's what turned, that's what God used to turn me toward him. And then when I went off to college, particularly my second year, I, I said to myself, you know, I need to know more about the Bible. I think I'll become a religious studies major. Well, uh, I started taking RS classes, and you know, and I look back with fondness on all my professors, and but they saw my nation faith, and they were coming from pretty left wing perspectives, and and they were they were questioning my faith, and in a way that wasn't necessarily totally constructive, but still. That's what got me motivated to start thinking about these issues more deeply, uh, along with the fact that a young R.C. Sproul started coming to our campus. He was at Lagonier up in Pennsylvania. And again, you know, R.C., we could talk about his ministry over the years and but didn't always see eye to eye with him on various things, but it was at that point, it was a really helpful thing to have somebody who was thinking seriously, though popularly, about theology and the Bible. And there were other influences as well that sort of then drew me in. As my mother always said, my mother's still alive. I'm going down there on Sunday to Sarasota to see my 95-year-old mother. But she always said, Trevor, you do things to death. In other words, if you get interested in something... <laughs> So I got interested in uh, kind of an academic ministry, and eventually that took me to Westminster. My wife introduced me to my future wife introduced me to Westminster. Though by the time we got to Westminster, we were married because she had become a Christian through some Westminster students, including mm. a person who's now a well-known New Testament scholar named Andrew Lincoln. <laughs> so, <laughs> wow, so, really? Yeah. And. At what point did you know you wanted to be focusing on the Old Testament? Well, that's a good question. I, I knew in college that I, because of the challenges I was receiving, and back then, people don't realize, because we have such an abundance of sources now, you know, even just take Bible translations. When I became a Christian, in terms of a whole Bible, it was either the King James Version the Revised Standard Version. There might have been one more, but the New American Standard Version wasn't out yet. The NIV wouldn't be out for another, as a whole Bible, for another 14 years or something. Uh, oh, the Living Bible. The Living Bible right, was out. Right. And so um, I, I'm surprised I forgot that since I'm one of the senior translators of the New Living Translation. <laughs> and the Living Bible was my first Bible. Uh, so there, there not a lot. Of, there weren't a lot of resources out there. I think we were all reading Francis Schaeffer. We were all reading Watchman Nee. J.I. Packer, when I was in college, wrote his first uh, book that evangelism and the sovereignty of God. So I wanted, I wanted to be somebody who would contribute, and, and of course, for my own benefit. 
I could, if I chose the path that I chose, I could spend my days studying scripture and theology. And my hope was to develop resources along with the community of scholars that grew up alongside of me, because I was kind of on first wave of uh, early on the wave of a whole development of evangelical scholars. I mean, there were, of course, people before me, like Bruce Walke and others, but there was kind of a, around the time I went to graduate school, more and more evangelicals were going to, you know, the Yales, the Harvards, etc. And up till then, most, except for Bruce went to Harvard, but you know, most went to really good graduate schools like Brandeis and Dropsy, but then more evangelicals have gone into a broader number of graduate schools. Hmm. It is interesting because I was going to ask you, you made mention of a recent, one of recent books of yours, (laughs) the Confronting the Old Testament Controversies. And I was going to ask why you wrote it, but now that I hear the background, I think, oh, this has been part of your living story from the beginning, it sounds like, almost. Yeah, yeah, it has been, though there's also a more particular story to why I wrote Confronting Old Testament Controversies. And so, first of all, I didn't think up the idea. Uh, I was uh, approached by an editor at Baker Books, who was kind of exercised about, he's retired now, and this doesn't represent the viewpoint of Baker books, but he, he, he knew that, I, you know, Pete Enns is one of my best friends <laughs> and former student and colleague and all that kind of stuff. And he knew that I also disagreed with him on some issues, including some of the issues that the book addresses. So For a few years, he kept urging me to write a book that would interact with some of Pete and other associated ideas. I eventually, I talked to Pete about it too. He knew what I was doing. After I wrote the manuscript, I had Pete read it over and all that kind of stuff. And as far as I know, we're still good friends. (laughs) He hasn't stopped talking to me. He still lets me buy him a margarita when we get together. (laughs) But any case, so I eventually said, yeah, I'll do it, but I, I will only do it in the most ironic way possible because I know Pete loves God. He loves Jesus. He loves the Bible. And uh, though I disagree with them and I, I think I can uh, push back. And, and again, that's where it started, but you know, there's a whole number of authors that represent a kind of reconsideration of certain controversial issues that I'm questioning in the book, let's put it Hmm. that way. It is interesting, even just the idea of confronting controversies, that a book with those two words in the primary part of the title (laughs) came out in 2019. So you were writing it during a time in the United States history anyway, Mm. people weren't necessarily running towards controversy. We were pushing away from people we disagreed with and- Mm then you and your book are are showing an example of a different approach, which is let, let's engage in yeah. a new way 
And even if we come to different conclusions, we're still going to share margaritas at the end of the day. And (laughs) I always appreciate in a modern context, people that can demonstrate what conversation can look like. Yeah, that's, that was my hope. That was my hope. I'll be honest, you know, the ones that I have the most difficulty with interacting are people who are more on the far right of me on issues like creation, evolution, et cetera. But I, I, what I'm saying is I have to work harder at those conversations. And indeed, when I interacted in my first version of my manuscript, one of my editors pointed out to me that I was a little bit sharper, had sharper elbows with some people on the more conservative side. And so I modified that a little bit. But I think one of the reasons why is because some of the voices on that side of the debate, you know, are too quick to throw out the heretic or perverting the gospel (laughs) idea. And, but still that doesn't justify and doesn't help to demonize them either. How did you, the subtitle of your book is pressing questions about Evolution, sexuality, history, and violence. Why did you choose those four issues? <laughs> well, I guess the short answer is because they're the four most controversial issues, or at least <laughs> they do, that they I do. thought about. Nothing like setting a small goal for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and individually, by the time I was writing Confronting Old Testament Controversies, I was already deeply engaged in the science faith issues. That came about, you know, starting in 2007, where <laughs> a YouTube video got released of me talking about Adam. And in the book, I talk about this. It was 2008, I think it was. And I didn't know what use the person who was asking me this question and filming me was going to be made of it. But then when I started getting pushback, I was told it was posted on YouTube, but I didn't know what YouTube was at the time because it just basically invented it. No one knew the power, (laughs) the power of a viral video. (laughs) Yes, yes. Well, long story short, that got me relieved of some of my adjuncting duties at a few institutions, but I also quickly got connected with BioLogos Foundation and some other so I, I, I've been working in the area of science and faith, and in particular, origins, pretty intensely for almost a decade. I think we should find out more about his thoughts about evolution and creation and that issue about Adam that turned his career in a new direction. We start with the topic of creation and the importance of reading it in the context of other ancient Near Eastern texts. You all know I think context matters, and understanding the ancient context helps us understand what the Bible is actually saying about creation, as opposed to what we want it to be saying. I might start by putting a little broader interpretive context by saying that we have to be very careful not to impose our modern questions and understandings on the Bible, no matter where you are in terms of your modern understanding and expectations. But you have to read these Genesis 
1 to 3, and actually Genesis 1 to 11, in its ancient context, because again, quoting my buddy John Walton, the Bible wasn't written to you and to me. It was written to an ancient contemporary audience. And so it's written for us. You know, that's why we treat it as canon. But we have to remember it was written to that ancient audience. We have to put ourselves in the position of that ancient audience. How would they have understood it before we apply it to our situation today? I mean, you could see that (laughs) most even on the surface level when you remember that these chapters were written in Hebrew, right? It wasn't written to us. It was in some kind of transnational linguistic idiom. It was written in Hebrew. I, 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 I once had a pastor sort of challenge me on, on my reading of Genesis 1 to 11 by going, you know, we don't need you and your scholarly expertise and your knowledge of ancient Near East. We don't, you know, need that. Just need to read the Bible. And I said, I happen to have my Hebrew Bible with me. I said, great, here. You know what? I'm sorry. I got a little feisty. I talked to earlier. <laughs> I said, uh, I said, I didn't yell or anything. I said, fine, here's, here's the Hebrew Bible. Go at it. Oh, you know what? I think you need me to translate it for you and people like me. And you know what? When we translate it, we make tens of thousands of interpretive decisions. (laughs) And when we translate, and I said, you know, you should know that the Bible's clear enough that no modern translation is going to mislead you as to the important stuff. But, you know, right from Genesis 1-1, you have an important interpretive decision to make. You know, do you translate it? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, period. Now, the earth was formless and void. Or do you translate it in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, comma, the earth was formless and void? I said, the former teaches a kind of creation ex nihilo. The latter assumes, at the beginning of the creation story at least, that there's a formless mass there. Won't get into that debate now, but but I think getting back to your question, it, it demonstrates the importance of studying ancient Near Eastern literature, particularly other creation stories, to ask questions like, what are ancient people really interested in? Are they interested in questions like the origins of matter? Or is it more a question of how does God organize matter? Uh, and and so and also I, I believe these ancient Near Eastern texts also point out to us that there's some, let's say, critical or polemical interaction with say Babylonian Canaanite ideas in the way the story is told in Genesis one and two. So so issues like genre ancient setting, literary context, all these are really important when you read these chapters to ask what, what type of literature is this and what is, it try, what is the biblical author trying to teach me in it? And, and to cut to my conclusions, <clears throat> I, I think that 
Genesis 1 to 11, like Genesis 12 and following, is a form of historical narration. It is telling us things God actually did. But Genesis 1 to 11, which is talking about the deep past, is using figurative language to depict things like the creation, the origin of Homo sapiens, the the fall. You know, so I I defend the idea of a historical fall, and 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 so forth. But doing it in a figurative way, so that when it comes to the creation, these chapters, Genesis one and two, are are telling us that God created everything, including human beings. But it's not telling us how He did it. And and I guess the final comment I would make about that is this is not a modern imposition on the ancient text. I mean, even you go back to the church fathers like Augustine and Origen, they understood that you weren't getting a kind of description of how God actually did it. They thought it was ridiculous to think that God created everything in six days and rested on a seventh day. They thought God created it in a millisecond. Why would God take six whole days to do it? So it's like... So, yeah. And it's so interesting because I think some of the controversies we have with this creation of evolution, the way we pit them against each other, is there's there's so much in the modern scientific brain that also has a view of the Earth from the moon, right? Which is a very modern thing, right? To stand outside of the atmosphere and have a look back on the globe and then go, how was that created is very different than people who could not have that perspective and whose feet were anchored to the ground. And they, they really even only knew of their portion of the globe, even if they called their portion of the globe, the whole world. Yes. Yes. Right. Right. And I think that too, again, it kind of gets back to what vocabulary are we using to frame the questions? It makes a difference. Big yeah. difference. I, I think that's exactly right. And that's why I think most people recognize <laughs> that the Bible isn't teaching cosmology. I say most people because there are some people who think that uh, when you, that say 21st century science is showing us that God, that, that the Bible somehow reflects a much more sophisticated cosmology than anybody, the author or the readers could have understood at the time. What is it that you do then if Genesis 1 through 11 are making high use of figurative language? What do you do with the mention of Adam and Eve in Mm. the New Testament? By like Paul likes to refer to them. He refers to I mean, not all the time, but they show up in a lot of Paul's writings. Oh, yeah. Um, He seems to think that they're historical well, that's People. the question. That's the question. Yeah, right. Does he? Does he? I have a, a wonderful quote from Jimmy Dunn's Romans commentary, which basically says, why should we so be so patronizing that Paul is not sophisticated enough to know that Adam and Eve are functioning as a kind of literary figure to represent something else that is historical, by the way. So I still affirm a historical Adam. It's just not Adam and Eve as the first two homo sapiens. And for our listeners out there, what the issue is, is that 
evolutionary theory, which itself is strongly evidence, also strongly evidences that Homo sapiens don't go back to a single couple that sort of pop out of the previous <laughs> previous uh, primate, but rather there were never less than a few thousand Homo sapiens on the face of the earth. And that happened, that transition happened about 300,000 years ago. So the strong science, especially for those of us who affirm the two book metaphor for God revealing to us through his word and through nature, means that when nature seems to point strongly in a particular direction, we ought to at least think through the issues in the Bible and in theology. And that, of course, most famously happened in history with the Galileo incident, right, where people started talking about, you know, the Earth is not the center of the solar system or the cosmos, right? That all the scientific evidence was beginning to accumulate to disabuse us of that notion. And people are going, oh, the Bible says, the Psalms say the earth shall not be moved. And what's this? It's not moving. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's moving. Oh, guess what? Perhaps that's figurative language. And perhaps the idea of the sun rising and the sun setting is phenomenological language. So sometimes the Bible helps, uh, science helps us read the Bible better. Pope John Paul II has a great quote which I hope I can pull out of my mind or at least paraphrase, which is science can refine our religion. Religion can keep science from idolatry and false absolutes. So it works both ways, but, but sometimes science can refine our religion and we have to be open to that. So my own view of Adam and Eve, when Paul's referring to Adam, he's referring back to the Genesis story, which is a figurative depiction of a historical event, okay? We might ask the question then, what is, what is, what are Adam and Eve pointing to then as a figure of speech? And there's more than one way to think about that, and I don't think we have to decide one or the other, but this is, so some people like N.T. Wright, and Dennis Alexander want to talk about, and John Walton want to talk about Adam and Eve as a, as an actual couple within a broader population. And because of the both the priestly and the royal imagery in Genesis 2, we might want to talk about them as priestly figures within this broader group, or royal figures, or both. And that that's a, a one way to think about Adam and Eve. Another way is to think that Adam and Eve, Adam's name after all means humanity, might represent a group. And then, but what group? And here I would say that Adam and Eve don't represent this first group of Homo sapiens that emerge around 300,000 years ago. That number, by the way, keeps getting pushed back by scientists, but that's the current number as I understand it. But rather what John Stott and Derek Kidner referred to as Homo divinus, okay, Homo divinus, not the first Homo sapiens, but rather the first Homo sapiens that God endows with the status of being image bearers, you know? Oh, what, what's an image bearer? Image bearer is somebody who reflects who God is and whom God commissions 
to subdue and rule the earth like the benevolent ruler he is. So they, they are commissioned to work out God's rulership in the world. But it's a status. It's not an attribute. So at some point, God said, oh, you're, you're my image bearers. And at some point, these image bearers rebelled against God. You know, again, I think Genesis 3 is a figurative depiction of a historical event. I don't think that it requires us or wants us to think that there was actually a tree with a fruit on it, but, but rather that it, it does want us to believe that these homo divinus rebelled against God and that, that their rebellion has an effect on all of us who come after them, or at least that's Paul's point. It's not, that's a point not made in the Old Testament. It's a point made by Paul in Romans 5. And so um, as I think about that, well, first of all, I'll say, you know, Paul teaches that Adam's sin resulted in the introduction of sin and death into the world. There's never anything about Adam's sin being imputed to us, like I'm getting punished because of Adam's sin, that that would be a kind of alien guilt idea, kind of unfair. I mean, why am I getting judged for something Adam did? But no, I'm getting judged. And Paul makes this point in Romans 5. I'm getting judged because I sinned, because everybody sins. So Paul, so Adam and Eve did what we would all do in their situation, and that their sin so disrupted cosmic and social order that it's impossible for us not to sin. That, that's my understanding of original sin. It's not a kind of inherit sin like a genetic disease or something like that. Oh, boy, we have so much more to talk about. Next week, we move into if the Exodus events should be understood as historical or not. Gotta love a good Old Testament controversy. Thank you for being here. And thanks to my brilliant team on Patreon, who are not only a huge support to me, but who are making season four possible. If you want to help sustain the podcast and get special things like spices from Israel or first copies of articles I'm writing, you can join the team. The link is in the episode notes, but you can also simply just post on your social media page and invite friends and family to join us at the podcast table. That will help make this podcast sustainable. I produced and edited this podcast. Peter Lordson of Sycamore Sound created the music and Luke Bronner of Milieu Media Group did the final mix. I look forward to our conversation next week. Until then, be safe, take care of each other, and stay curious about the world around you. Music.